The Triathlon Show 328. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Luca Filippas. Luca is a researcher at the University of Milan and an endurance sports coach of professional and amateur runners, cyclists, and triathletes. In this interview, we discuss a recent study that Luca and his colleagues conducted comparing polarized and pyramidal training intensity distributions, as well as how to combine them optimally in a periodized plan. We also get into Luca's coaching methodology, so there's a good mix of very practical and applied things in this interview as well. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Roca. When Roca first got started in 2011, the challenge they set out to solve was to create the world's fastest wetsuit, which in its current iteration is the Maverick X2 wetsuit. Ten years later, in 2021, they set themselves a different challenge, which was to take the extremely high standards of wetsuits like the Maverick X2, but create a budget-friendly version of it that doesn't compromise the standards and incorporates as much as possible of the key features of their flagship wetsuit model at an entry-level price. The result of that is the Maverick wetsuit, which at 275 US dollar is a great option for an entry-level wetsuit, but in terms of quality, it definitely does not play in the entry-level leagues. It has top-quality engineering, design, and materials, classic Roca features such as the arms-up technology, patented centerline buoyancy for a better and snappier rotation, Yanomoto neoprene, quick-release ankles, and more. You can read all about Roca's different wetsuits on roca.com, and you can get 20% off your order on roca.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a one-of-a-kind swim bench that helps you improve your technique through an early catch, maximize your propulsion through a more powerful stroke, and stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home even when you can't go to the pool. The Senate Swim Trainer is available in the UK, EU, and the US with free shipping in both the UK and US. It is very affordable, similar to a pair of running shoes, and best of all, the investment is risk-free. If you're not in love with the Senate Trainer after two weeks using it and using their free program, you can send it back and get a full refund. Learn more and get a 20% discount on your Senate Swim Trainer on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Luca Filippas. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Luca. How are you doing? Uh, fine, thanks. Uh, so let's start with uh, just an introduction. Uh, can you tell the audience and uh, myself who you are and what you're what you're doing? Yeah, I'm a PhD researcher at the Uni Milan. Uh, I've completed my PhD a uh, couple of years ago at University of Milan, uh, doing some research about endurance training, and now I'm. Uh, mainly a researcher at the University of Milan, but also at the same time uh, an endurance coach uh, for triathletes, uh, cyclists and runners, both uh, elite athletes and amateur ones. Yeah, no, that's that's great to straddle both sides of the applied side and the, the academic side and, uh, and co- combine them and, and, you know, have them help each other out, have an additive effect of the two. Uh, I, I think that's a really great, great thing when when people manage to do that. So the reason that you're here is that you published a very, very interesting study, uh, which is called 
the effects of 16 weeks of pyramidal and polarized training intensity distribution in well-trained endurance runners. And some listeners may have heard of it already, but let's just take it from the start and discuss some background. So what, at a very high level, what was this about and, and why did you uh, come to do this study? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I have to say that this study was really, really difficult to, to, to be concluded. Later on, we can explain why. But yeah, this, this study was an intervention study with a, a training intervention. So it was pretty difficult to do it because, um, yeah, you know, when you, when you are working with and also do research with high-level athletes, it's kind of difficult to, to, to do research uh, in their busy schedule and training program. But um, coming to, the, to your question, I think um, one of the problems of um, the previous researches on training intensity distribution was that um, they just compare um, different static training intensity distribution. And so in our study, we wanted to compare uh, what happened uh, mixing uh, two different kind, uh, two different types of training intensity distribution. So, and can that's I, why, so, so sorry yeah. to cut in, but just yeah. for listeners that are not familiar with the term training intensity distribution, can you define that? Yeah, uh, basically, training intensity distribution is um, um, is the, defined as the amount of time that the athletes spend in different zone of training intensity during exercise. So usually training intensity distribution is defined in three different zones. Um, zone one, uh, that is uh, below the first ventilatory threshold. Zone two, that is between the first and second ventilatory threshold. And zone three, that is above the second ventilatory threshold. So training intensity distribution is the time that the athletes spend in one uh, or in all three different zones. So the percentage of time that the athletes spend in uh, th- these three different zones. Yeah, v- very simplistically, you could call it easy, moderate, and hard intensity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so go on. And uh, you were explaining about how in your study you were uh, you were attempting to uh, to to use several training test distributions, which has not been done before in in intensity. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, the two main um, training intensity distribution used in, um, in, uh, in endurance competition and in endurance athletes are uh, polarized and pyramidal one. So polarized is uh, a training intensity distribution when zone one is, um, the time in zone one is higher than time in zone three, that is higher than time in zone two. And Pyramidal is uh, the time in zone one is higher than the time in zone two that is higher than the time in zone three. So these these two kind of um, training intensity distribution are the most common in endurance um, athletes. Uh, I suggest uh, for the for the audience to 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 read a, uh, a nice article on on this topic that was written by. Um, Stogel and Sperlich um, in 2015, as I remember right. So for the audience, I think it's a good paper to 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 read uh, for the uh, 
to be in, introduced well in this topic. And but uh, what what was the um, uh, the the things that missed uh, in uh, in all the the literature before our study um, was that usually the previous study compare polarized one with pyramidal one, polarized one with traditional uh, uh, per, uh, training intensity distribution, or just um, a period of high volume with a period of high intensity. But usually when you see a training program, um, you, you, need, uh, you see a, a, a change in the pattern of training intensity distribution from the beginning of the training, uh, of the training program to the end of the training program. Um, in this article of Stogelas Perlich that I mentioned before, they just um, see a common pattern of endurance athletes uh, of going from high volume, low intensity at the beginning of the preparation to a, a, a more uh, pyramidal approach during the, the um, uh, pre-competition period and at the end a polarized training intensity distribution during the competition phase. So this one was just a... Um, uh, what usually elite athletes uh, do. And so in this article, uh, these two authors reported that usually uh, elite athletes do in this way. So basically, we wanted to check if this approach was right or not. And so check if the elite athletes do in this way, because this is also the uh, physiological, the best physiological approach to competition. And so that's why we compare different uh, kind of training intensity distribution, uh, checking if this approach was the best for, for elite endurance athletes. And, and was that paper by Stogel and Spirlich uh, an observational study? Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. yeah. Yeah, so just for listeners, that uh, that basically means that they, they looked at uh, retrospectively at what have these elite athletes been doing and, and now... Uh, what what you did, Luca, in your study is an intervention study where you actually take a, a cohort of athletes and you design different groups and a training intervention, as you say, and then to to validate that. So it's a kind of stronger form of evidence compared yeah. to observational. Um, so uh, tell us more about the uh, the methods, the the participants, and and the groups and the and the training protocol. Yeah, so we we recruited sixty well trained runners. Um, they're pretty good runners. Their VO2 peaks was around 65, 70 milliliter pro kilo per minute. And so you know that it's pretty high level uh, just for giving a, a, a time and a, uh, over a distance. They um, were between 15 and 16.30 in 5K competition. So they were not elite, but pretty high level athletes. And this is also the reason why I was explaining, I was uh, telling that the, this kind of study was really difficult to, to be completed because uh, do a control intervention for 60 well-trained runner was really, really demanding. And so uh, it's also the, the, 
the reason why this kind of study is so is not so common to be seen in the literature because it's kind of difficult to to control all the training program for 16 weeks because this intervention for uh, lasted for 16 weeks um these participants were randomized in a controlled way uh, in four different groups one group um did all the 16 weeks of pyramidal training intensity distribution from the beginning to the end. Uh, the other group, the second group, did um, eight, 16 weeks of polarized training intensity distribution. So from the beginning to the end, all polarized training intensity distribution. And the two other groups did a sort of mix of them. Uh, one group did eight weeks of pyramidal followed by eight weeks of polarized. And the other one did exact, exactly the opposite. So eight weeks of polarized and then eight weeks of pyramidal. The participants were um, matched at the beginning of the, of the intervention in these four groups. And all the groups did a, 16, a six weeks pre-intervention before this 16 weeks intervention just to uh, make them uh, familiar with the um, training intensity distribution and also the procedures of the the, the training program. Um, so uh, at the beginning, we did the pre-test before the intervention. We did also the mid-test uh, exactly at the at the, at the half of the of the intervention, so after eight weeks, when the two groups uh, changed uh, their uh, training intensity distribution, and then uh, we did uh, the same test at the end, so the post test at the end of the of the eight weeks. Um, the weeks were organized in and, and uh, the, the test. Oh, the test was a five thousand meter time trial. Yeah, exactly. The test were. Five uh, five thousand meter time trial, uh, a blood lactate profiling, and an incremental test to assess the VO two peak. Right. Yeah. So both uh, performance and physiological tests. Yeah. Um, the, the 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 sixteen weeks were organized in uh, four mesocycle of four weeks. So all the groups did three weeks of uh, load and one week of taper uh, and then repeat again. So three weeks of load and one week of taper. But the main difference in, for the three group were, for the four group were uh, the training intensity distribution. So one, two groups that did the same inter- training intensity distribution for all the eight, for all the 16 weeks and the other two that mixed the two different training intensity distributions. Yeah. And uh, so then, uh, I think, was there anything else with the methods or should we go into the, the results? Um, I think just uh, we can mention that uh, the, tra- the participants trained um, six times per week mm-hmm. um, and that their training volume per week was around uh, 400 minutes per week. So that's... That's uh, basically what what we did. So a, a kind of similar training program um, compared to what they really did in their uh, 
in their uh, before in, the study. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's between four hundred minutes, between six and seven hours. So, in terms of kilometers, um, what would that be like? 80, 90 kilometers or something? Yeah, we're, we're around between 80 and 100. 80 and 100. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, then in terms of the results, uh, maybe we can we can discuss uh, first the, perf- the performance, pure performance in terms of 5,000 meter time trial. What, what happened there? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, what happens was that uh the pyramidal all groups improved but uh one group improved more than the other and was that uh was the pyramidal to polarize group so the one that started with pyramidal for the eight week for the first eight weeks and then changed to polarize for the second eight weeks and this group improved more than the other by around 0.5 percent uh all the groups improve around uh, in a sort of one one and one half percent, and from pre to post test. But the the pyramidal to polarize improve a zero point five percent more than the other group in the in, in the time trial. And also, this happens also to to the velocity associated to to the two uh, lactate thresholds. So also. Um, uh, the uh, velocity at the two millimoles lactate threshold and uh, also velocity associated to the four millimoles lactate threshold. So participants basically improved more in the the group that mixed at the beginning in pyramidal and then polarized. Exactly what uh, uh, Stoglin's Perich observed in uh, in uh, in elite endurance athletes. Yeah. Um, what about VO2 peak? Did that also improve more in that group, or was it uh, was there no difference? Uh, regarding VO2 peak, there were no differences between between groups, so there were no uh, particular changes from one group to to, to the other one, um, suggesting that maybe um, VO2 peak at this kind of level is not. Uh, a, a metric that can change uh, just in 16 weeks of intervention. So, yeah, the change, but we, we cannot, uh, we could not appreciate the differences between group because the changes were really, really, really small uh, from from the beginning to the end of the of the intervention. Yeah, no, it's something you discuss in the discussion of the paper, I think, with how yeah. in in similar level of athletes, VO2 peak or VO2 max is generally not uh, the determinant of performance. It, it can discriminate between very different levels of athletes, but but within a homogenous group, that's that's not the main thing that determines performance. So, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, perfect. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so. So that's uh, that's really interesting, and we see that that both the performance and and some physiological markers in, uh, or the speed at physiological markers uh, improved more in the pyramidal depolarized group, kind of as as maybe hypothesized based on that paper by uh, by Stoglin and Spirlish. So yeah, um, yeah uh, regarding that, then um, first, 
we we're talking about the performance outcome being a 5000 meter test do you think that uh is is it is it really important what sort of endurance performance you're pre- preparing for for example if you're preparing for a marathon or a half or full ironman would it would results maybe be very different what's your what's your mm-hmm. take on this yeah sh- sure sure i think that will be completely different but i think this study as a take home message that intensity can guide the uh, level of fitness of participants. So going from low intensity to a higher intensity from the beginning to the end of the training program, it's the best way to train uh, endurance athletes. Of course, um, depends the, the, the training intensity distribution at the end of the, of the training program depends, uh, I think, depends on the um, uh, intensity of the race. So if you are training for a 5K like this, probably going from pyramidal to polarized is a great option because at the end you are doing exactly the specific training. So you are doing uh, the polarized training, so uh, the zone 3 training that is exactly the intensity of the uh, 5K um performances races uh while if you are if you are preparing for a marathon you know that the target for a marathon is zone two uh the 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 intensity of the marathon is zone two so probably the best option is to go similarly from low intensity to higher intensity but maybe you, you you must start a little bit lower intensity than preparing for a 5k uh with, with the pyramidal training intensity distribution, and maybe at the end you arrive similarly to a pyramidal training intensity distribution, but with a more higher, with a higher percentage of time spent in zone two. For example, uh, at the beginning you can start with your with training ninety percent zone one, ten percent zone two, zero percent zone three, or ninety percent. uh, zone one nine percent zone two and one percent zone three and maybe at the end for a marathon you can arrive at 80 percent zone one 15 percent zone two and maybe five percent uh zone three Mm -hmm. so you you increase the 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 intensity from the beginning to the end of prioritization but of course the pattern will change because the specificity of the (laughs) training program um should 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 be considered should be considered yeah that that makes a lot of sense uh i think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying there and when you're talking about these percentages by the way uh do you have those numbers uh in terms of what did the polarized index distribution look like from a percentage perspective and what did the yeah. pyr- pyramidal look like in, in yeah percentage um so the 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 theory <laughs> well is that during a, a polarized training the amount of training in zone two is really, really, really low. But for our study, we did a, a sort of uh, real uh, polarized one that also uh, the audience can can easily uh, apply. So we uh, just basically, uh, we, we just basically um, do for polarized 80 weeks, uh, 80% of zone one, uh, around six seven percent on of uh, zone two and 14 15 percent 
of zone three. And for pyramidal, we did 77%, uh, 78% of zone one, uh, 17, 18% of uh, zone two, and around 6, 7% of uh, uh, zone three. So uh, was a kind of um, typical pyramidal one, but the polarized one was, um, yeah, a pyramid, a polarized one, but we um, keep a sort of minimum level of zone two uh, that was around 5%. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in in the paper, kind of what you already discussed a little bit about how the in- increasing intensity is is the way to build fitness or, or increase performance, I should say. Uh, you talk about how that is uh, aligned with the tapering process a yeah. bit or the peaking process uh, is maybe the term you used there. And so can you can you discuss that a little bit like how what you find aligns with with previous literature and uh, and best practices around yeah exactly uh, so uh, we found that um keeping the keeping high the intensity also at the end of the of the training program um is a, a boost for performance similarly to what found by many articles on tapering uh the most one uh, the most ones are from Mujica that found that uh, a reduction of around four, 40, between 40 and 60% of volume we, without changes in intensity is the best way to, to taper. So we did, a, <laughs> we, did a, 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 we found a similar, a similar things here because uh, during the last weeks uh, of the training intervention, the polarized one uh, keep high, keep high, keep high the intensity, and so that's why I think they have the greater boost at the end of uh, of the training program uh, because their um, relative intensity was higher compared to the pyramidal groups. So that's why we thought that the taper was also most effective in. Um, the group that changed from pyramidal to polarized because um, they um, not 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 even um, uh, alter the the training intensity distribution, but they also um, they also uh, so going from low intensity to higher intensity, but also they have a higher intensity at the end of the protocol. And with the reduction of the volume at the end of the protocol, they they could have boost their performance better than the pyramidal the pyramidal group. Um, so I think I think this one is one uh, of the message that can be uh, take take home from the uh, from the audience. Uh, we we can you, you have to increase the intensity uh, from the beginning to the end. And also keep the same intensity also at the end, just re- uh, reducing the the amount of volume before your your race to be fit enough to to compete at your at your best. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, what about when considering how this applies to a year long periodization? So we were looking at sixteen weeks, which is already a very long and good period, of course, um, but. 
maybe it wouldn't work the same if you try to do, let's say, 25 weeks of polarized and tw- uh, 25 weeks of pyramidal and 25 weeks of uh, of polarized. You would maybe have to yeah. break things up into into different parts of the season. How how do you think that? What is the time frame that you can use this sort of approach? And and should you take like a season break or like at least some bigger recovery week? I, I think, you, you, think you must uh, decide at the beginning of your season how many peaks you want during the season. So I think the two most common uh, ways to, to, to peak are the two peak, so two peak in a season or three peak in a season. And so I think you, you, you must break your season just immediately after your peak. So going from low intensity to higher intensity, peak, and then um, do a transition period and then restart with the base period. So with low intensity, high volume training, and then restart your, 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 your preparation. Uh, I think uh, you, 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 you must recover after eight, nine weeks, uh, eight, nine months of, of, of preparation. I think you, you cannot prepare um, for 12 months for a race that's come in 12 months. You must break the season in shorter period. Otherwise, it's too long and the yeah. risk of overtraining or injuries are really high so you must break up your 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 season in in a shorter period of time so i think picking two or three times in a in a season is the best way to 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 do this yeah i think the 2020 when when the covid-19 lockdowns first started was a really interesting case study in this when um for some athletes I mean, for everybody, races were were gone for for a long time, but then, but some athletes had actually ended up with a lot of time to train and and not much else to do. So, and uh, and and personally as well, I had a lot of time to train, no races. So, it, it was just really interesting to see. Okay, how long can you keep training and try to build fitness? And at what point does it stop being effective and, and you have to basically take a rest even if you don't have that race. You have to treat it as if, if you had a peak and then really rest and, and start over again. It, that that was for me as a as a as a coach and an athlete, it was it was quite quite eye-opening and, and a good good lesson to learn from that year. Yeah, sure, sure. And also I think another another thing's interesting about the COVID period was that uh, and the lockdown period was that um doing a really big period of training without racing uh for also uh, elite athletes was really useful because usually they spend a lot of time in racing and also recovering from racing and uh traveling to the race and doing this block with without racing i think was really useful for them to to do a good base and then uh, do a great result during the the summer because you know that uh, for the case uh, of the Tour de France they just recorded many many uh, record on on the climb uh, in, in in that year and they came from few years few few, few races so uh, I think it it explained well how is it important to to do a, a right and in the long base at the beginning of of the of the preparation before before going into competition absolutely yeah 
Yeah. Um, let's discuss a little bit more around what we which kind of touched on already with VO2 max not being that good of a marker to discriminate between athletes of a similar level. Uh, why uh, why is that the case? What is the mechanism why why that's not important? But you can look at maybe things like velocity at at two millimoles or velocity at four millimoles, and 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 they seem to be better markers of performance can can you discuss your thoughts on that yeah i think it, it easy to it's easy to explain to the audience because uh the vo2 max is a uh, the a metric that uh, measure the uh, maximum amount of oxygen uh, that you can use during exercise and so it's a, a sort of um, measure of your engine so your 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 power of your of your of your body, and so I think um, it's 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 not uh, it's not the best the best metric for for long endurance competition because you know that uh, the velocity associated to VO2 max or the power associated with VO2 max is um, uh, you, you you can keep this velocity or power just for few minutes just five six minutes and so it's uh, not so important because usually you, you don't need you, you never need this power or, or this velocity when you do longer competition you just need to to go at, at the highest percentage of vo2 max for for the longest time possible so if you are if you are um, doing a marathon you, you are trying to um, use the best fractional utilization of VO2 max for that time of the marathon. So, for example, if, you, if your VO2 max is 80%, 80 milliliter per kilo, sorry, um, and during your marathon, you are never reaching 80 milliliter per kilo, but you are running, uh, you're running lower at a lower value of VO2. And then your aim is to try to run at a higher VO2 than um, than uh, uh, um, another runner that has the same VO2 max than you. So that's why VO2 max is not so important. It's really important for shorter races. So I mean, for um, 50,000 meters, it's really important. And, but if, if you are going to a longer uh, race, is less important. Of course, you, you cannot be an elite athlete with 60 milliliters per kilo because you know that uh, for running at two hour and five minutes uh, for a marathon, you need a higher uh, VO2 for the marathon. So if you if you're, if you're, uh, uh, Limit is 60 milliliter per kilo. You know that you cannot uh, reach that level. But when athletes have uh, an enough higher level of VO2 max, the things important are uh, the thresholds, of course, the fractional utilization of VO2, and also the, the economy of the of the of the movement. So uh, cycling economy, running economy, skiing economy, and, and so on. So. That's why it's basically um, important to have an higher high VO2 max, but it's even more important when you have this higher 
this high VO2 max also to have high threshold, high fractional utilization and high um, economies. Yeah. And what past guest of the podcast, Michael Rosenblatt, actually talked about how maximum aerobic power or maximum aerobic speed. So basically the, the power or speed associated with VO2 max is a, is a lot better uh, as a marker uh, because then you you kind of take economy into into account uh, so he he suggested that that could be a good testing tool for athletes you, you don't even need to know your vo2 max but if you you can easily do especially on the bike when when people have a smart trainer at home it's very easy to do a, a ramp test to get your maximum aerobic power that way and, and that can be a great way to track changes in your in your in your engine even if you don't know your exact vo2 max if you know your your maximum aerobic power then that's even better because it takes a bit of that economy into account yeah exactly exactly and also because you 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 really don't don't need any kind of number you don't you don't need to know if you have 75 or 78 74 if you are if, if you're able to to do uh 300 watts for 60 minutes and then you are able to to do 350 watts for for 70 minutes for 60 minutes you know that you you are getting better <laughs> you, you know that yeah it's kind of simple <laughs> you don't you don't know yeah. of course the vo2 max will be improved uh, if you uh, move from 300 for 60 minutes to 350 for 60 minutes you know that your vo2 max yeah. is improved but uh, you, you don't need to know the number it's not it's just it's just not not needed for for train better mm. So uh, let's get into some other training questions. Or was there is there anything else with this study, by the way? Do, if you want to highlight w- w- one or two take home messages, uh, or repeat one or two take home messages for the audience, what would that? Yes. Yeah, so so the, the first one is that um, for this kind of competition, so five k competition, and also we can extend to um, middle distance competition. Moving from pyramidal to polarized seems a good way to to improve performance. The other uh, more general uh, take-home message is that going from low intensity to higher intensity from the beginning to the end of periodization is the best way to improve the the, the performances. And I think also the other take-home message could be that for this kind of competitions, uh, so endurance competition, both middle and long, you didn't um, need to have um, uh, changes in VO2 max to improve performance. So some maximal uh, changes in performance are uh, enough to improve uh, overall performance. Mm, yep. So then uh, going to some more training and coaching questions because as you said at the beginning you are also coaching a number of endurance athletes both professional and amateur in different sports so just a very general question at first what is your coaching methodology like if you were to describe it yeah yeah uh, I, I i usually uh train uh, based on the on the evidence of the literature so i'm what we found in the study uh, was exactly what I usually do in my training. So I'm u- usually doing a really good base. I'm r- really a fan of a solid base. Uh, as you know, 
you, you had in your podcast um, uh, as a guest uh, in Igo San Milan that talked mm-hmm. about the importance of zone two uh, in, in, the, in the five zones, zone two. So it's zone one. If you, if you go, if we look at three zones model, um, the importance of zone two training. So the base training. And so I'm a really fan of doing really high volume, low intensity at the beginning of the preparation and then move to specific training intensity going from the base to the peak of performance. So this, this is my approach, training philosophy. And I'm also, I'm also trying to um, apply a sort of uh, Microperiodization in my training program because um, I believe that a fixed approach doing three weeks of load, one week of taper, three weeks of load, one week of taper is just overrated. And I think you must check when the athletes need recovery based on also based on metrics like. HRV or RPE or perception of uh, fatigue or uh, different different kind of, of, of uh, metrics that you can check and then you can give it short of couple of days or three days of taper and then you can start again to to, to do a, a a block of training um, it's a sort of periodization because I think that it's overrated the um, uh, overcompensation that uh, people think that happens at the end of the taper period. I think if you if you do a high intensity training today, do a couple of days of easy training, your your body is a- again ready to to at, at, at the top level at at the maximum level to 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 reach another stimulus and so I do another high intensity training. So I don't I don't see the uh, the need of doing a fixed period of taper, just do during the weeks, for example, one week of high load, like high intensity training, zone two, zone three, then two weeks of two days of sorry, two days of uh, easy training, where um, uh, the, the the body can recover and you can get the the adaptation from your previous high intensity training and then you are able again to do uh, and your body is ready to to uh, from a bio- biological pers- perspective to to reach and to keep the 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 intensity and to 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 adapt from that training so i'm basically doing uh one one day of high intensity two three days of t- uh, taper or easy day with zone, mainly zone two training and then another one of high intensity and going in this way till the athletes is reported to be um, in a s- situation of overreaching or just fatigue. And then I, I give uh, a couple of more days of recovery and then start again. So I don't have a fixed approach in periodization, mm-hmm. just really, really... Uh, 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 changeable, uh, yeah, kind of periodization. How, how, how <coughs> excuse me, how long do you find it takes on average, uh, for until I, I guess there might be a very big variability, but 
is like is it typically two weeks or four weeks or one week until un, until an F, until an athlete on an average athlete gets to the point where okay now we need those extra days of rest what what do you find yeah i think i think it's really <laughs> really the variability is really high so that's why i'm going in this kind of approach because i mm. i think uh, you, you cannot standardize the 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 the, the timing of of um, uh, of the taper of the of the week of uh, low load because it's different not not um, not only for the training program and the training characteristics or the um, characteristic of the of the subject that you have of the athlete that you have but also it depends also on the uh, on what the athletes do in their life, in his life, uh, we, besides training, because usually we consider training. Yeah, you know, for elite athletes, it's mainly that. But many amateur athletes maybe do do uh, thirty thousand steps uh, each day, and maybe another one do just five thousand steps each day, and this makes a lot of differences in how the, their uh, fatigue at the end of the of the of the of a training program of at the end of a, of the week, just basically. Mm. So um, this variability depends not only uh, on based on the characteristic of the athletes and the training program, but also from what the athletes uh, is able. And how the the athlete is able to recover from uh, from the sessions? Um, I mainly see that, uh, uh, of course, runners need recovery a little bit more than cyclists and swimmers because um, you know the impact and the loads of the of the during running is higher than during cycling and, and, and swimming because of the impact with the, with the, with the terrain. So that's why I think runners uh, usually need uh, maybe after a couple of three weeks, they need recovery. But I, I, I have seen swimmers doing perfect uh, kind of micro periodization for six or seven weeks consecutive without having any kind of perception of fatigue. So it's it's mm. it's kind of really variable from one one athlete to the other, and also from disciplines, and also as I said, from what an athlete do during their their daily life. I, I I'm I'm I have just read a, an interesting article that can suggest the to the to the audience from from Sperlich. And where they compare um, the training intensity distribution of an athlete during um, the just the training and during the the all twenty four hours, and they see really really differences in the training intensity distribution from one athlete to the athlete to the other athletes doing the same training if they compare the training intensity distribution during their life. So. They just spend mm. really a, a good amount of time in zone two during their their normal life 
of course they, they so they, so so two in a three zone model or in a five zone model uh in a in a, in a three zone model in a three zone model yeah. so just doing just running for take the train or just uh, coming from the from the doing the steps for, to come to the to their apartment and so really yeah 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 <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm very surprised to hear that it's interesting yeah it's really interesting they were amateur athletes but was really yeah. really interesting so they were uh, supposed to train in exactly in the same way but one athletes do completely nothing i'm just comparing two of them one yeah. athlete do yeah. did completely nothing during their 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 uh, resting time and the athlete, the other one was doing like 40,000 steps with around 2 or 3% of zone 2 uh, accumulating mm. in their resting time yeah okay yeah well uh so to clarify what i was really surprised about was that they accumulate time in zone two but of course it makes sense that some some people have the type of day today that yeah they are doing a lot of active things a lot of steps and so on as you say i just assumed that most of that would be in zone one and it sounds like most of it still is but they but there can still be a, a fair amount of zone two in there that of course will also have an impact um yeah no that's i mean i think those are all great points and definitely it it makes sense that with when you compare amateurs and professionals for example that on average probably the professional will be able to go on for much longer without yeah. needing a break but then of course it depends as well on how much you overload their their training um uh, what we talked already a bit about the different type of training for different distances like 5k versus a marathon um but other than what you already mentioned is there anything else that that you think is important to to highlight when uh, in differences in training for different events of different duration yeah well i think we can mention just a couple of things of course volume matters of course when you when you think about different kind of disciplines i think volume is a really really important variable for training so um i think change from yeah 5k to marathon but i think it needs to be higher to be high also in uh, 5k runners compared to marathon so uh, i think volume is a really key uh, indicator of performance for for endurance athletes so i think it matters when 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 you when you compare different kind of athletes and the other thing that i think matters when we, when we talk about different type of races i think the specificity specificity of um training program of the training uh, uh in, of the racing uh, race intensity sorry so uh, i think you must train a lot at your specific race intensity uh, uh, of course mainly during the specific period so the the pre-competition or competition period um, and i think one of the best way to go for it is um, to start with small intervals at your race pace and then try during the 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 specific period try to extend the intensity so try to do longer intervals at uh, the same speed at um uh, as, as as the race so uh for example for a marathon you can start from 
uh, at the beginning four times 3k at your marathon pace and arrive at the end with six times 4k at your marathon pace with maybe 1k of recovery in between um, so just extend the intensity uh, or even you, you can you can start also with uh, five times 2k at your marathon pace and then arrive at six times 4k at your marathon pace uh, but uh, you, you know that just starting from four times 3k and then arrive at six times 4k or even better four times 6k uh, at marathon pace is uh, a good approach i think to 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 train the specific intensity of the race and this is one i think it's really important in when when we talk about uh, endurance competition specifically in uh, running because running is uh, is when when you run you run at at at, the, at an even pace so that's why it's so important to extend the ability to do this pace um because yeah you know that running is uh done at at an even at an even pace in cycling is kind of different different and so i think it's also important to do uh short intervals more short intervals than running because you know that the the changes in uh, in power are really really often happens often in in cycling and more <laughs> way more than running yeah no th th that's a great point and i also think that in cycling you are fixed in your position and and you have a fixed movement pattern whereas in running running at five minutes per kilometer is a very different movement pattern than running at three minutes per kilometer uh so so actually it's almost like not different sports but definitely very different demands on the neuromuscular system so mm -hmm. so it makes really sense that to be efficient in running especially you you have to train a lot at your race pace in cycling it's maybe less important because all the cycling you're doing is at the same it's the same range of motion the same movements and and more or less the same neural patterns i i would guess although of course the amount of muscle fibers you recruit will impact that as as well but the movements themselves are are the same yeah exactly perfect <laughs> you, you 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 can um, change your your gear and and just do the same the same yeah. uh, cadence also for different different watts and in running you you cannot do this <laughs> if you are running at uh, yeah you can change the cadence but uh you are you, it's it's a kind of different uh things about uh, compared to cycling of course yeah yeah uh so then uh, one final question on training a uh, very general question uh if you can give three pieces of advice uh for the listeners for how to improve their endurance training their endurance performance what would that be yeah sure um the first one is i think uh i can i can say volume uh if, if you are able to 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 increase your volume uh gradually during your uh um, competition uh competition uh, your your career your competition career you you are able for sure to improve your your performances so going from starting from your career about uh, around 100 kilometers and 
at the end you arrive at 200 kilometers, for sure you will improve your performance, of course. But um, so I think you, you need to maximize your availability in terms of time during uh, doing a lot of volume. Of course, you need to be um, uh, you need to be careful about uh, possible injuries, and so <laughs> take a look at your biomechanics and see if you are uh, good enough to 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 improve your to increase your volume. Um, but volume matters, so you you need to to take this into account when you when you are doing your your training program. Um, the second thing I think uh, when you are when we are talking about training um, is to give your body enough time to recover after each interval session. I'm not a fan of uh, doing lo- big blocks of high intensity session because I think from a biological perspective that your body is not so um, um, able to to improve when he's really, really fatigued. So I think it's better to give enough time to recover after each interval session, each high-intensity session, and then do uh, the second or the following high-intensity session when your body is fresh and recovered from a hormonal perspective uh, bone perspective muscular perspective um, uh, neuromuscular perspective and also central nervous system perspective and so i think you need to give enough recovery after each training each high intensity session and they are the, 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 the third um the third thing is uh of course to to start with at, at a low intensity and and um move to an high a higher relative intensity from the beginning to the end of periodization and doing this i think it's important to um choose the right races during the 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 season to keep the um to to allow the body to to do this approach so from going from low intensity to high intensity so i'm not a big fan of doing a lot of racing at, at the beginning of the of the of the base period of of uh, or at, mm-hmm. at the half of the preparation because i think the 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 races are uh, really really a, a, a high intensity stimulus so I think they need to be at the end of the preparation. Mm. So I think choosing the right competition and putting the right competition at the right time could uh, help you to pick exactly when you need to pick and not before and uh, and, and arrive at the, at the competition when you are in the down phase of, 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 your, of your shape. Mm, yeah no that's that's a really interesting point definitely and uh then i I want to ask a few questions going back to the academic side uh first are you working on any uh, research research projects uh, at the moment that you can share anything about yeah yeah we are uh, working me and my uh, other colleagues 
um, from University of Milan and University of Genova. Uh, we are uh, working on basically on uh, determinants of cycling performance, and we are trying to publish a couple of papers on periodization of um, world-class uh, cyclists because we have some data from a world tour team coming from another colleague of Spain. And so we are trying to do a, a, a sort of uh, observational study in, at this time, uh, comparing top, te top 10 um, Grand Tour finishers uh, in their approach to their Grand Tours. And I, I can say... Um, just a spoiler of this study that the for these kind of athletes they really um, they really things that help to to reach the peak fitness uh, peak performance during their grand tour is the how they schedule their race uh, during the season so mm -hmm. um, the Usually, their intensity uh, going from the beginning to the to the Grand Tour is uh, increased, of course, as we say. Uh, but their um, sort of um, uh, putting the higher intensity at the end, and this higher intensity is always associated with races. So uh, for for cycling, what probably nothing is best is, is better than doing intensity during races. So for preparing for a Grand Tour, probably one of the best ways is to keep uh, low the amount of race days at the beginning of the preparation and ju just do a block of two or three. Uh, uh, stage races in preparation uh, just few weeks or few months before the 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 grand tour the the, the uh, goal grand tour and mm -hmm. so this one is one of the 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 topic that we are that we are uh, uh, trying to to cover in our research and basically this one is the 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 main project that we have because we have a lot of data from a world tour team And then uh, I think um, the other study uh, have just been published a uh, couple of days ago, and they talk about uh, they were about uh, uh, comparison of uh, junior under 23 and uh, professional cyclists from a racing point of view, and um, in a few weeks we hope that is coming also the training point of view so we, we have compared these three these three groups for racing demands and for training demands all right yeah i'll look look up that one that was published a couple of days ago and put that in the show notes and uh, really looking forward to seeing reading that one about the the grand tour contenders because that was fascinating uh, what you said about how the race schedule is yeah. uh, a main I, determinant i think i think i think it's important because we we want to do a, a sort of different approach compared to previous researches because we we did a sort of case study, multiple case study 
with three or, or four, we, are, we, we have to decide three or four um, top 10 Grand Tour finishers. And we just want, don't want to do means or standard deviation and um, comparing all these three or four athletes, but we, are, we want to show what these athletes do what these athletes do and what these other athletes do because we want i think it's important for a for a for a coach not only to see means but also to see uh what an athlete do uh by himself so just him and the, the approach the the volumes the the training patterns the distributions and the races and so I think uh, it's better to to show just uh, each athlet separately from from the other. Mm, yeah. Uh, then, uh, what's one area of sports science that you use in your coaching that you think is underrated or that a lot of people maybe don't know about or understand? Um, I think uh, I, I think that. Uh, probably one of the the most underrated area when 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 we talk about uh, research, I think it's low intensity research. Uh, I think we have really really important studies on high intensity training, um, high intensity interval training, and so on. But we have really few researches on low intensity training, and I think this this approach should change. And I'm going to with with uh, my research group. We are trying to 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 think about possible future um, researches on this topic because you know it's. About 70, 80, 90 percent of minutes of, of your total time that you spend at low intensity. And almost nothing is known about this kind of uh, activity in, uh, in research. They usually compare yeah, high intensity with continuous and this kind of periodization with this, this other kind of periodization. But few studies uh, have been conducted on low intensity comparing maybe zone one with zone two in the five zone models or just going a little bit higher um, than um, the first ventilatory threshold or going just a little bit lower this first ventilatory threshold what happens from physiological and hormonal uh, and central nervous system perspective we, we can just do an hypothesis based on physiology but really few studies have investigated this topic so i think this is underrated in sports science and i think it should be covered during the next few years yeah that actually answers my next question which would have been what's one area of sports science that would help your coaching if more research was conducted so you kind of an- answered that uh, in the, at the same time um but following up on that uh, that answer that you gave with the lack of research and low intensity training 
what do you do in your coaching when with your athletes when you prescribe low intensity training do do you do you prescribe it very specifically or if you have a runner do you just say easy run and and let them go off and do their easy run no i just i just i just try to to of course with the evaluation test with testing i just to try to yeah to 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 evaluate the athletes and to to check the first ventilatory threshold and then i think it's important when you do easy training to go below this ventilatory threshold and i think it's really really important and when you when you have this point you i think it's not so important uh how far are you from the from the from this um from from this threshold of course when you after one high intensity set, uh, training session i think you you can just recover so just go below the first ventilatory threshold and that and and my athletes are usually free to do it uh, even really below the the ventilatory the first ventilatory threshold or just a little bit closer but when you are far from a high one high intensity training session so for example today high intensity session tomorrow easy run so feel free to 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 run below first ventilatory threshold but choose your pace uh, you can choose your pace by yourself the the, the third day uh, so the following day uh, I, i usually prescribe it a more specific to be Uh, closer to the to the first ventilatory threshold so uh, typical zone two training and then again another high intensity or medium intensity session so i'm i'm basically doing both usually after after a, a high intensity training or medium intensity training i i leave the athletes free to go easy and then the other day the following day i'm usually prescribing uh, a more Uh, closer to zone to 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 first ventilatory threshold training so a, mm. a a more specific range of watts or pace uh closer to the first ventilatory threshold yeah yeah right um then let's go into the rapid fire questions so take one sentence to answer each of these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports um Yeah, it's difficult to reply in just one question, in one sentence. Uh, I think um, I have um, I have just received it, but I think the new the new book of Philip Skiba, "Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes," should be the best um, suggestion for 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 the audience yeah uh, i'll put a link in the show notes to the interview that i did quite recently with with phil skiba where we talk about some of the uh, contents of of that book um and then what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically professionally or personally i, I think uh, uh i'm honestly thinking about doing research um uh, help me to uh and also doing uh coaching helped me to to i think um for both for coaching and 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 research i think you need to to really be um a 
a sort of psychologist for your athletes. So I think one of the most, uh, the, 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 one of the habits uh, that you can um, do in, in both, uh, you, you must, uh, you must uh, talk both to participants and also to athletes to get the best training program and so the, the best um, uh, training uh, and the best outcome on your athletes and also the best um, uh, link with participants during the, during the studies. So I think the psychological, uh, the psychological perspective is one of the, the link between uh, my coaching experience and my research experience. I think it's really, really important in, in both fields. Yeah. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Uh, I have to say that my inspiration is one of my supervisor of PhD and is Antonio Latorre, that is now the head of um, uh, track and field uh, athletics at the Italian Athletics Federation and inspire me during my my PhD and my and my career as a researcher and as a coach but you know the other the other people that inspire me are uh, the most common researcher on 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 endurance um, training so uh, Steven Saylor Stogl Sperlich and Mujica uh, Inigo Sam, uh, Samilan, Dr. Samilan. And so m- many people, I, I can recommend many people that uh, inspires me, but probably the mentor of myself is uh, Antonio Alatore. Okay, well, good to see him. Uh, and fi- finally, can uh, do you have your own research gate? I think uh, Twitter or w- what are the best places where listeners can follow you and your work? Uh Almost everywhere, <laughs> I have a Twitter account as is uh, Luca Filipas, and also Instagram is same Luca Filipas ResearchGate. Again, <laughs> Luca Filipas is not so common, so it, it, it's and, not so and, common. So and, and we- website as well. I remember now. I, I checked your website. Luca Filipas dot com. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Well, I'll put all those links in the in the show notes and and links to your papers that we've discussed as well. Um, yeah, so thank you so much, Luca. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I really, really enjoyed that. And uh, congratulations on the really great study that uh, that you and your colleagues did. It's uh, it's really, uh, as you said, I, I can imagine it was very difficult to pull off, but but you did a fantastic job there. Thanks, thanks, thanks again. It's been a pleasure to be here in your in your podcast. Thank, thanks. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Luca's website and social media, as well as ResearchGate. Also links to several studies that we talked about and mentioned. The main study, of course, effects of 16 weeks of pyramidal and polarized training intensity distributions in well-trained endurance runners, as well as studies by Stögel and Spirlich and uh, Treff and colleagues and also a couple of previous guests on the podcast were mentioned in this interview including Inigo Mujica and uh, Dr. Philip Skiba so 
those two were guests in episodes 256 and episode 311 respectively so i'll link to those as well well worth listening if you haven't done that already if you are looking to take your triathlon training to the next level consider looking at our coaching services or training plans on scientifictriathlon.com if you have any kind of triathlon goal that is important to you, whether it is to finish your first triathlon or perhaps even uh, qualifying for a world championship or qualifying for a pro license, then we are very confident that we can help you out and have a discussion around how best to do that. So please feel free to contact us and discuss further. Next Monday, I interview Dr. Bruce Rogers, who's done a lot of the preliminary research that indicates that it might be possible to use DFA-alpha-1, which is a heart rate variability-based measure, to detect uh, where your aerobic threshold is, meaning your uh, the demarcation between your kind of low-intensity and moderate-intensity training zone. So that would be an interesting one. Stay tuned for that. And finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out Roka's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com for slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. And get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with a promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. And don't forget, this is a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.